Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, good morning, Friday morning. Uh, I wanted to do this yesterday for my overseas crowd. <laughs> They're always writing to me, but uh, I can't help it. I had too much to do yesterday. I had too many speeches and things and bar mitzvahs to attend now. It's the age of the Zoom bar mitzvahs, and that's the new mitzvahs. Um, by the time I finished all my stuff yesterday, it was just too late. I was wiped out, so I can't help that. So it's Friday morning. We're going to do partial mid. We're starting Book of Mid. It's a week before she was. I just want to say that today's podcast is being sponsored by my good friends, the Shulchman's Eight and Ariella, because Baruch Benzin is having a bar mitzvah this week, and he is lucky enough that... Um, is actually going to be able to lane and one of these tiny minions that they're going to have at their house. If you ever been at their house, it's the size of a golf course, you know. So they can do the social distancing. Um, so there's a lot of boys, as you know very well, that unfortunately for them did a lot of practice for their bar mitzvah and had the bad luck that their bar mitzvah parsha was in the last several weeks when all the shuls were closed. I mean, when minions were prohibited. And so that's just tough. And um, I'm happy for Buckman Cena and some other boys. There was a Raiden boy yesterday. They actually have a chance to uh, put all the practice they did into practice, you know. And was actually do some laning, even though um, it's going to be under restricted circumstances because now, because of the corona situation, as everybody knows, we have not opened shoals, we've opened minions. So that's a different model, right? Matter of fact, that model is kind of reflected Interestingly, in today's um, in today's uh, parsha, if I if I get if I get there uh, uh, to that, if I remember this, you know, let me just say in general, we have parsha by midbar, and uh, I think though there's a there's a strange and cute and interesting part from the kliyakar. Not that I'm into that so much, but because I find about two weeks in a row using kliyakar. But nevertheless, having said that. Um, who talks about these grand schemes. And to be perfectly honest, sometimes I think these darshans like Kliyakar, you know, they came up with a great idea and then you have to fit the evidence into it. And his idea is, it's in Parshish Tzav, that uh, when you read the Chumash, so you, it's like bringing the five carbons. Have you ever seen that? It's somewhat famous. I don't know how famous it is. But, you know, he the Kliyakar is obviously trying to get across to his readers who cares about all these different carbonos, you know, what's in the gate dust nowadays, and so forth, and he gives different approaches, and one's a remes, you know, yeah, pshat, rosh, remes, soda, all that, and uh, he says, he says over here, outside of remes, he talking to the farsh, chamash pamim zos torah, shenem zu. It says, over there in Vayikra, in parashat shav, zos torah sa zos torah sa Zos Torah Sachata, so the word Zos Torah comes five times, and, you know, being a famous homiletician, so he basically says, and if you read and learn the five books of Moses, it's like you offered the five carbons. 
And uh, it's at the end of Parsha Shav, you're interested. I, take a little, I recommend it. And he goes on to make the case, which I think you could improve on. Ha'osig b'sefer b'reshis doma kilo hikriv ola. Ha'osig b'sefer shmos kilo hikriv mincha. Ha'osig b'sefer vayikra kilo hikriv chatas. Ha'osig b'sefer b'midbar, that's our book we're starting this week, kilo hikriv asham. And ha'osig b'sefer dvarim kilo hikriv shlamit. Now the reason I said you can improve on it because how's, it's a nice word, but what does it mean? You know, so for example... Bracious, he says, is an Ola because, you know, kind of Hevel, Hevel brought an Ola and Noah brought an Ola. All right. Yeah, all right. I mean, that you could hear, Stickle. Uh, then it says, why, why is Shemos like a Mincha? Because all the Minchas come with a Matzah. All right. You know what that means? To get the art scroll, what do you call it, the Stone Chumash, and look in the back. This is a good idea because Shemos is coming in a week and most people don't Follow these things. So go get the uh, blue chumash and go all the way to the back. Here, I'll pull mine out for your help. And you'll see something interesting. Because, you know, the big carbon connected with Shavuos, which is an unusual carbon, is the Shteyalechem. Isn't that right? So if you get the snow chumash, which I assume most of you have, and you go to page um, 12, hmm, uh, 1294, 1294, 1294. You'll see a list of all the mincha offerings. You'll see almost none of them are chametz. They're all matzah. I didn't say matzah like on Passover with a flour and water. It's matzah shira. You know, it's flour and mixed with oil. So just going down the line very quickly, you know, you have the, the solas and the machvas and the minchas marchesh and minchas chalos. And you see when it's, an, it's a wonderful chart that the arts will put up. And one's mixed with oil, one's with mixed oil fried with a griddle, one's mixed with oil fried in the pan, one's mixed with oil scalded in hot water. You always get the thing mixed with oil. So in other words, it's always matzah shira. With the exception, the only time you have chametz is, as I think many are familiar, with a part of the carbon toda, where uh, part of it is supposed to be uh, uh, chametz and the rest not. You know, they're 40 lows and so forth. And um, where else? Uh, the the uh, the, the atzeres, you know the 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 uh, what do you call it uh, the carbon on on Shavuos, which is also from chametz. That's a, a much has been spoken about that. So, that's just an interesting thing to realize. So when you look at it that way, so then, you know, you say the case if you read Shmos, you are from carbon mincha because all the minchas have matz in it. I don't know. That doesn't sing so well with me. And then you look at Vayikra as like a karmachatas because uh, they did the same with the eagle and all. Again, it's not so convincing. And then Bamidbar is Kilo Hikrav Why? Kibo Nemar Kultaras Asham Baparshas Naso. Because in Parshas Naso, you have about the carbon Asham. Well, you already had it before. Alpha P. Shekvar Nemar didn't Asham Parshas Vayikra. Right? You know, you already did carbon Asham back in Vayikra. Mikomakam Nishnasham. The Dabashan is Chalish Bro. There are halachic things about it. It's like I said before, it's it's a hard case to build. Uh, having said that, having knocked it, I would offer my own thought. And it's a very interesting one. It says if you do by midbar, you do a carbon asham. I think that's true in a different way. Uh, because 
That's where Jewish people screwed up, made a lot of big mistakes. And they're very tragic. We live with their consequences today, especially in the Maraglam. And some other things like that. And when you look back and you say, Oy vey, if we only hadn't done this, you know, uh, then things would be a lot better. Got in Israel right away. When they had all the junk for the last thousands of years in Jewish history, the whole world would be different. You know what I'm saying. The whole story by Midbar, especially Korach and the Meraglim, is a kind of a repeat of the Adam and Eve story in which you had a paradise situation, and then for human screw-ups, paradise was lost. Paradise was lost. And the reason I'm making a big deal out of this is because it's always very interesting to me that in, how does Bamidbar start? Consider well, the Jews, when we last met them, chronologically, were in Rosh Chodesh, El, uh, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, a little bit less than a year after they left Egypt. Right? If you follow the story. You know, they obviously left Egypt on Pesach, they got the Torah on Shavuos, and then they made the Golden Calf by Shabbat Shabbat and then they got the second tablets, I repeat, the second tablets on Yom Kippur, and then they constructed the Mishkan, and then they erect the Mishkan. That's the chronology. And, that, and, and, and it's at that point you end the Book of Shemos, and the only thing you have in Vayikra is they inaugurate the Mishkan, Shmini. I think that's right. That's all you have. So, and then the Bamidbar picks up. So what has happened, Lamaisa? They did the golden calf. They're no longer getting any messages from upstairs. They're getting their messages from this Mishkan, which is at the base, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that's where you get all the carbonus and stuff like that. You find the Book of Akra. And then the story kind of resumes. And uh, they haven't started to move yet, but soon they will. Okay, fine. So w- what is the substance of the Book of Bamidbar? Bamidbar, Nasu, and all the rest of it. It's basically uh, drafting an army. You start counting people. What are you counting people? What do you want to know in this week's Parsha with this endless stuff that this tribe has so many people and this one but so many people? It's for military purposes. Right? It's a drafting an army. And then you can't just have an army with a census and know how many people there are. You have to organize them. Uh, you know, in some armies they organize them this way, in other organized they are another way. The Romans had a legion. Nowadays, you have divisions and brigades and that sort of thing, you know, core. And uh, the, the, the way they did it then was tribalistically. As you find the Chumash. This is not me talking. This is a Beferish of God, <laughs> right? It says in Pasha that, you know, the, the tribes should be organized in their flags in certain marching order around the center where the Mishkan is going to be, as we all know. Degel Machne this or this, Degel Machne that or that. And, you know, by the time you're done, you have three, 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 three. The 12 tribes are organized in groups of three, east, west, north, and south. And that's where they're going to be camped. And these are what you call the organization of a military force, which is just interesting. And I'll say it again. Hashem himself goes through the trouble. This is not Moshe coming up with an idea. This is Hashem saying, this is how I want you to organize everything. And um, so they're going to have an army. Uh, what do you need an army for? Well, you're going to Israel. What do you need an army if you're going to Israel for? Why does Hashem just go one, two, three, poof? Um, why don't they just walk to Israel unarmed and with utter faith and have the enemy just crushed miraculously before them? 
That happened on other occasions. If you know the book of Deuteronomy, there was a king, Asha, uh, what's his name, Yehoshaphat of Yehuda. It was a from guy. And there was a surprise attack by the enemy, three armies, who surprised attacked the Jews by crossing the Dead Sea and coming out not too far south of Jerusalem, you know, a certain place which Shalom could see the Dead Sea. And by the time the story's over, King Yehoshaphat is real from he consults with a prophet, and then they just walk. He leads the Jewish people from Jerusalem towards the invading Arab armies without any weapons, and they're just singing hosannas, you know, they're, 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 they're saying, tell them, really, Hod Hashem, Kilim Chazdo, they leave out Kitov. And God arranges it, therefore, <laughs> that what happens is something which is not far-fetched by our imagination today, it happens all the time in the Middle East, which is the three invading armies Wipe each other out. You know, one Arab said to another, your mother's at this, your father's at that. Next thing you know, everybody killed everybody. So by the time the Jews, unarmed, come to the uh, cliff where they can see in the valley below, the, all the Arab armies, the three armies were, were wiped out. And then they spent a considerable amount of time taking the spoils. Why didn't you do that back in time of Chumash? The Jews got the Ten Commandments. Okay, they messed up a little bit, but you know, now we're back on schedule. And let's go to Eretz Yisrael. And let me put it this way. Bishlema, if there would have been the Parsha of Meraglim and then the counting of the armies, so I get it. So then what you're saying is, see, you were going to go into Israel miraculously, uh, supernaturally. But because you messed up by the Meraglim, now you have to get an army and fight it. That's a logical sequence of events. But it's the opposite. First comes Parsha by Midbar, and Shlach, you don't get to a couple of Parshas later. So it means that already, before there was any Moraglim Parsha, uh, the Jews already have an army, and they have to make military plans in order to conquer the country by sustained campaigns. Which means you have a war war, you know, with casualties and everything go along with that. Why? I thought everything was uh, great at Harsinai. You understand what I'm saying? So, uh, it's very interesting. By the way, what I just said more or less boils down to the Ramban's uh, interpretation of the Raglam story. You know, because many unfortunately Rashi say it was a mess up on the part of Moshe, or it was a mess up on the part of the Jews, you know, whose idea was it, you know, the old story, uh, throw the blame on the other person. So, Shlach Lechon Hashem, it's Ladai Hashem said, it wasn't my idea, and in, uh, how you call it, in, uh, uh, Devarim, it was like the people's idea, and that's on Moshe's idea, you know, whatever it is. And Ramban in Shlach, I think, says, it wasn't a bad idea. They had an army. He doesn't use the words I'm using, but this is what it boils down to. You had an army, you're going to have a campaign. It's a Derek HaTeva, nothing wrong at all, to have what we call today G2, intelligence. Every country in the world has this. You cannot have an army going blind. An army has to have scouts and spies. Maraglim, check out what we have to do. Is there any place that's mined, that has uh, any ge geography things we have to know? I mean, consider, the Jewish people were supposed to invade Israel and fight a war. They do not know the land. They do not know the topography. Anybody knows anything at all about the military. And I'm not the world's expert in this, but there are people who know less than I do. Anything at all. It's all map reading. It's all knowing the, the ground. It's, uh, it's of unbelievably fundamental importance. And throughout history... One general after another has either prevailed or lost because of adequate or inadequate knowledge of the grounds. 
I mean, when you really get down to the nitty-gritty in the battles, it's uh, quite remarkable. So the Jews are going to a land. Now you know, and I know, Israel has nutball topo topography. It's not all flat. It's not all mad. You know, correct? You have the Jordan Valley. You have the mountains in the middle, the hills that are going crazy everywhere with cuts and so forth. And then you have the, the Shvela, the plains, you know, up to the Mediterranean. So just from a military perspective, if you're told, by God, I want you to organize an army, which we're told in this week's Parsha, go take a census and organize an army. And then the idea presumably is to march and, and take Israel. So it's fine with me. So you're going to march, and let's say the Miragum had not happened. So how far away from Harsina is it to Israel? Not that far, right? And so assuming that Mount Sinai is somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula, they're not that far. And so they're going to march up, and then what? Are you attacked from the south, you know, from Beersheba point of view? Or you come from Avar Yardin? You want to come from Gaza? Moses is not the only army in history that has undertaken to invade Palestine from the south. It's happened many times in history. And each time you have to have a plan and you have to have the knowledge of the topography. Did the Jews know? I mean, I'm asking a question I don't know the answer. Did Moshe and the Hebrews know what Israel looked like? I mean, I don't know. Probably not. Therefore, because they weren't there before. So the Ramban therefore says, and then it's Eve and others. He said, well, then there's nothing wrong with sending Meraglim to know how to plot a campaign. It makes total sense to me. Now, um, what does that mean? It's all based on the fact that in this week's Parsha, you have an army. You have an army. So I think, the reason I'm emphasizing this, I think there's something that many of us kind of uh, don't notice, because, you know, it gets boring. You read the numbers, and this, and that, and the other, you know, like the Musavarts and all that, which is fine. But the main thing you have in this week's Parsha is that you're not going to go into Israel on a flying cloud, and you're not going to go into Israel without a war. Which is strange, because here they are marching through the desert, and they had Anani Akavod, and you know, they say the Anani was like uh, blasting all the problems in front of them. But when you get to uh, the land of Israel, then it's going to be a different story. Uh, and indeed, as we know, the spies went, you know, did it wrong, but the basis of it is the fact that they have an army over here. Now, what does this indicate? As far as I can tell you know, sitting here today, it means that this is the result of the Golden Calf episode. It, I could be wrong, I don't know, but, you know, it sounds like if they had not done Egozov, then indeed there wouldn't have to be some kind of an army. Because we're not told of this whole business of census and organization prior to uh, Parsha Midbar. We're not told about this before, the, in the seven weeks before the golden calf, you know, or the two, uh, two three months, whatever it is before the golden calf. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, now, you could say, because that was coming later, all we know is, that Hashem didn't take them straight in Israel, which he could have done in a few days, because they couldn't handle the war. That itself is a stickle problem, because God can do whatever he wants, but nevertheless, take that uh, in at face value. Uh, so, okay, fine, then you have to get the Torah, which is a miraculous occasion. Uh, so now you have that, armed with the Nas of Anishma, we would say today, and the crowns of glory and all the stuff they had. Presumably, they would go march from there straight to Israel and everything would be great. But they didn't. Uh, after the Eglazov, 
as we said before, there's a demotion. God is no longer speaking from the top of the mountain, from the base of the mountain, from the Mishkan. So you have a spatial representation, in fact, of a lowering of Madrega. And you will take Israel, but you have to have an army, even though they have a big army too. And uh, with generals and all the rest of it. And that indeed means uh, that having a war is going to be a basic essential element of, of taking Israel. If you want after the golden calf to have Israel, you have to fight for it. Perhaps the reason is because you don't appreciate what you don't fight for. You know, I don't know. It, it makes sense. Like I said, I don't know, but it makes sense. That, you know, now you're going to, you're going to have to earn Israel. And what people fight for, they care about. Right? That's just the, the teva of, of the world. What you fight for, you care about. Uh, that's why in the state of Israel, everybody's so stuck with the army, all the rest of it, because, you know, if you fought for it and you lost people and you made sacrifices and things like this, you care about it. Anybody who's a soldier in the American army does not like it when somebody burns the American flag. Now, it's legal. You can do it. We have freedom of speech. You do. So, you know, not taking away your right to do it, but it bothers. Because I saw good people, the person would say, who sacrificed their lost men or shed blood or things like this for this cause. So Israel has to end up being such a cause. So therefore, you have to uh, uh, have a, a great deal of emphasis in the parsha or in the organization of the army and the uh, numbering of the army. And later on, you know, in uh, Bamidbar, I'm sorry, in... Um, in Dvarim, uh, there's going to be even more regulations about the army, you know, hygiene and uh, baltashchis, and you know, th- and what's the policy on POWs, <laughs> or is there POWs? Anything along those lines. So um, I'm p- actually planning, hopefully in early June, which is not long from now, to do a lecture series, which I mentioned once or twice on Jews and war and the. First of the lectures, it probably have to do with the biblical period in which you see war is something the Torah has in mind. You know, it's a, it is interesting. And, and by midbar, it plays a major role. The problem is, you know, uh, when you have a big army, then you have fallen to the problem of kochi votes and you know, something like that. Or you can go to the other extreme, which is, uh, you know, so. A successful army has to negotiate, soldier have to negotiate between two extremes. Uh, you know, you have to avoid the pitfalls of arrogance, but you also have to avoid uh, the pitfalls of fear, right? Uh, because an army that's scared is no good. And so it's just very interesting that uh, Bamibar goes in great detail about this. In addition, um, I mentioned this the other day in the Zoom group, it's just interesting to me that... Uh, they have a, a great deal of emphasis on taking apart the Mishkan and, ha- and how exactly it should be transported. The whole end of the Parsha gives rules and regulations about the Bnei Kahash and all this, and the Torah goes into great detail, you know, uh, how you wrap everything up, which is interesting, because you wrap everything in, in a Tachash, meaning all the items of furniture you wrap in like a soft cloth, and then you wrap a very hard thing around them, which is a seal skin, which is kind of weird. Dudongs, they're called. These are uh, the kind of seals, believe it or not, they hang around the Red Sea. So, it's just interesting. You understand what I'm saying? It says, Ksuyar Tachash. What the heck? They're in the middle of the desert. Where are they getting a Ksuyar Tachash? And uh, now there are others that interpret Tachash differently, but 
as best as I can tell, I'm no expert on this, the, the, the you know, the, the best Pashat interpretation of Takat is the sea animal. So, and by the way, it makes sense, because then you have like a, a tight packing of like a rubbery substance around these precious items, like the menorah and the, the, the aron and all these other things, you know, Zixui ar tachash, and then you always do be, uh, parcel of uh, sealed uh, uh, parcel of tchelis. In other words, as they carry them through the desert, the outer thing is like decorative. It's a purple wool. It's very pretty. But underneath, in order to protect it against being banged, you have the seal skin surrounding it. So where did Moshe get the seals? That means that it's just interesting. It means that the Jews are in the Sinai Desert. That's true. And if you know the map, I think you know the map. The Sinai Desert is this, uh, looks like a triangle, correct? An upside-down triangle. And it's uh, uh, two bodies of water, one on the left, one on the right. Uh, on the left side, looking at the map, between the Sinai Desert and Egypt is what they call the Gulf of Suez. It's a Mifrats, it's a whole big gulf. And on the other side is what we call the Gulf of Eilat, or the Gulf of Aqaba. So, I don't think many of us ever give much thought to this, when the Jews are traveling around the desert, um, they're never far away from the ocean, from the sea. And at the very bottom, by the way, at the tip, the lowest uh, tip of Sinai Peninsula, there you get the Red Sea. So the Jews are never far away from the water. It's not drinkable water, but they're never far away from the water. So it's not like they're wandering through the Sahara Desert, in which, you know, it's this endless sand. It's never endless sand. It's The, the water's not far away. And... Uh, if the Tachash is what I said it is, what most Mepharshim, or many Mepharshim, my modern translators, you know, your Ari Kaplan types and all that, uh, if this is a seal skin, then when they constructed the Mishkan, let's put it this way, this group was, uh, you know, Tavu Asaizim, this group was uh, sewing and, and knitting, and this group was uh, doing blast, uh, goldsmith work and silversmith work, and this group was... Uh, taking the wood and planing them and cutting them and doing the wood stuff on there. And this one was, you know, doing all the different sockets. And one group, you know, it had to be fishermen. You know, Moshe must have told one group, it's not mentioned by Yaakov Akude, you guys go to the uh, uh, the ocean, to, I mean to the, to the sea. Uh, not that I know exactly where they were, but let's assume that they were on the left side of, uh, of the Sinai Peninsula. That's what it seems like. So, you know, go over here to the uh, Gulf of Suez and uh, catch me some seals, <laughs> right? And, or dudongs, as they're called. And, uh, and bring them here, and we're going to use their skin. And then most of them have to make a calculation from a, you know, logistics point of view. We're going to have so and so many items of furniture, and therefore we're going to have many seal skins for all of them. So I want you guys to get me 50 seals or 100 seals or 200 seals, something like that. And it's just very interesting because these guys don't get much credit, do they? They got to go down to the water, and catch the seals? No, not necessarily. Could be that um, local uh, Arabs are got to form, pay them. Uh, it's another thing we don't think about too often, which is as the Jews are wandering out the desert, is there anybody near them? And if, in fact, geographically, you have a couple million people unkished up with guilt traveling through these desert areas, I'm sure merchants and Bedouins and junk like that are always coming to sell them stuff. Uh, it was legal. And, uh, you know, later on they talk about Moab having trouble with that. 
with the Benos Mo. But what about long before that? Wherever they went, they were surrounded or nearby was a merchant's. And, uh, you know, some of the halachas and Shabbos about planting and, you know, or sowing and reaping. I mean, you know, they, we don't know a lot of what happened exactly in day-to-day life when they were in the desert. It is interesting to me. So along these lines, you have, you know, a great discussion about disassembling the Mishkan and how to transport it. And the only reason I mention is almost homiletically. This week, Bamidbar comes out to be the week, the week that the coronavirus quarantines is modified. They didn't open the shoals, as everybody knows, but they opened the minions, which means we're dealing with a brand new model, as, as we all realize. I mentioned this yesterday. Uh, I don't know what's in Israel, but I'm talking about in America. And the model is you have shoals, but nobody's meeting in shoal. Uh, you can have a shoal of a, of a couple hundred families, and that means there are dozens of little minions. And so you end up, as I say, not with a Beis HaMikdash model, but with a Mishkan model. Uh, Beis HaMikdash is a central location where everybody goes to worship. That's the synagogue nowadays. But then you have another thing called the Mishkan model, which is this thing that moves, assembles, and disassembles. What are we doing this week and starting this week, and for who knows how long, is a new model in which you're getting together little meetings of 10, 15 people, with or without a Sefer Torah, Everybody's bringing their own furniture because of the corona, so everywhere they're, they're, they're working out, little by little, best practices, you know, by trial and error. And so everybody's bringing his own uh, face, a chair, you know, and your own sitter. And what, what's the scene? Here's a backyard, here's a porch, here's a parking lot, here's a this, here's a that. And uh, people get together for a minion, and uh, you assemble, quote to speak. They come with the chairs. Let's assume you have one of these minions where somebody has a little Torah somewhere. You think you set up a little uh, uh, table, you know, to read the Torah from. You have a chazan. I mean, everybody's socially distanced and all that. Uh, you assembled, quote unquote, a mishkan. And for the time that the davening is going on, let's say it's minchamar, for for the fifteen twenty minutes that's going on, you have a mishkan, and then everybody goes home. the The rules are all over the country. If you're following the rules. The rules are, uh, you get together, but you don't schmooze. You get together, you daven, you stay your distance, and then you leave. It's, it's, a new, it's a new model. Rabbi's not giving speeches, except in some Zoom capacity. And, uh, you know, you don't hang around and talk about Trump, and you don't hang around and talk about the, the elections, and you don't talk about the, you know, the, the ball game. Uh, that's very unhealthy. And it's interesting if this model will take, because... Uh, Thoughtful people will tell you, I can't get this into my head. But thought people, I, I, I talked with Shimmy Garden yesterday. He said, what's going to be Rosh Hashanah? I said, I'm sure by Rosh Hashanah things will be different. But I could be wrong. Nobody knows what's going to be by Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Frankly, we don't know what's going to be by Hanukkah time. You know, it could be this new normal. Although it's hard to hear. I, I think, I think, I think, right or wrong, you know, they'll eventually get back into synagogue, especially with the hot weather. That will produce its own set of problems. Uh, in my opinion, the people who are going to be at Kings this summer are the air conditioner experts. You know, if they know how to redirect the, 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 the what do you call it, the breathing, you know, take it out of the, you know, I shouldn't cough on you, you shouldn't cough on me. But I don't know, that's, that's like Jules verb. The bottom line is, uh, we have a model that we've all been compelled to adopt by the uh, plague, 
And the model is the Mishkan, in which you assemble and disassemble. And uh, we're going to have to learn. Uh, those who have, for example, Sifri Torah, many don't, obviously, not when you have uh, 20, 30, 40 minions, and I'm not saying to have one. But let's say you do. And I know people, you know people also, they're going to get it. So uh, is Mamash going to be like Parshas Bamidbar? Uh, do you have a box for it, you know, an Oren? Uh, how do you wrap it? How do you take it? How do you not take it? You know, uh, there'll be a whole protocol that have to be uh, developed and adhered to. Otherwise, who knows? People can mess up. So, Sidurim, benches, chairs, and all the rest of it are going to be the 21st century equivalent of the uh, menorah and the shulchan and the mizbeach and uh, the aron and all the things that we describe in this week's parsha. And uh, remember what it says that you have to treat the altachris of shape mishpachos You have to be careful. You know, how you take them apart and how you don't take them apart. The coin is the one that's supposed to put, take them apart. The lady's just supposed to carry it. So there's a message in that also, which is one has to know how to assemble, one has to know how to disassemble. So it'll be a happy hunting ground for OCD people, math and science types, because they'll develop exact uh, protocols about how to do so. But here's, here's where they're called for. Here's where they're called for. So when you look at Parshish by Bidbar, in light of the current Christ we're all going through just strikes me uh, very interesting, and especially if you put in light of the fact that today is the anniversary of the Six Day War, right? Because yesterday was the Yom Shalim Six Day War, and this week is talking about mobilizing the first Jewish army in history, uh, the first organized, uh, uh, conscripted, and uh, you know, uh, large scale army in Jewish history, Parsha by Midbar. Uh, you end up saying that the Parsha of the Week is the Parsha of the Week. With those few thoughts, I leave you, and it's coming week is Shavuot, so we'll see what we talk about then. Have a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.